0: So last week we began the second part of our series, our run through 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. We began the first week in 2nd Thessalonians, which is a follow-up letter that the Apostle Paul writes to a church that he planted. Now again, I encourage you to be reading through Acts chapter 17 and reading through 1st and 2nd Thessalonians on a regular basis for the next several weeks. I want this to become very familiar territory for you. And this was a letter that Paul wrote a few months after he wrote 1st Thessalonians. It's a a letter of encouragement, a letter in which he simply says to a group of people, well done. I see the marks of God's grace in your life. Keep doing it. I see what God's doing. God's really affirming your faith. God is at work. Keep it up. And so last week he wrote this letter uh, and and we saw, we'll read through the first particular, I don't know, the, the first chapter together. And we saw last week that he simply gave thanks to God for them. And then we See, he begins to address one of the three main issues that the, this church was facing at that particular time. So beginning in verse 1, I want to read this together all the way through the chapter. We'll spend most of our time on verses 5 through 10. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father. For good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. May the words of our mouths and even the meditations of our hearts become pleasing to God as we open his word together. Last week we saw a picture of a church worth boasting about. In fact, a church that the Apostle Paul was boasting about and introducing us to what a church ought to look like and the importance and the significance that the church plays, not only in the, in the Bible, but especially in the life of these people. A church then worth boasting about is marked by genuine faith, growing love, and a deep hope in God's sovereignty. That is, that God is working together something, even in enduring hardship and persecution, that was advancing His kingdom. And the evidence of God's righteous judgment on these people to make them ready for the kingdom that He's bringing was what they were doing as they were enduring persecution. But I want to show you, as we step into something really interesting for these verses, from about verse 5 to verse 10, I've got to do something, and I've got to ask you to consider something that I know is going to be difficult for you because it's 2018. And that is to think seriously about judgment, about the vengeance of God, about hell and judgment day. I want to show you this that Jesus returns to repay, excuse me, there's an at there. Jesus returns to repay the ungodly in righteous vengeance or to relieve the suffering of those whom have believed. In him, Did you see those two words in the text? Jesus is on his way back, and a couple of things are going to happen. In verse 6, God is going to repay with affliction those who have afflicted the people that Paul is writing to. And then the second thing in verse 7, he's going to grant relief. He's going to relieve those who are afflicted when he returns and is revealed. Jesus is coming back. We believe that Jesus has come in mercy and grace the first time, remember we celebrate this every single Palm Sunday, Jesus rides in humbly on a colt, making his way into the place where they will eventually reject him to prepare us in this triumphal entry for the triumphal entry in Revelation chapter 20 through 22, in which he comes back in a white horse, stained with stained garments from the blood of his slain enemies, and marked on his thigh as King of Kings, Lord of Lords. That's how Jesus is coming back. So I've got to show you a couple of things. I've got to outline how this shouldn't surprise you, that anyone familiar with the Bible will see that the judgment of God is throughout the entirety of the Bible. And I've got to show you that this is not new. But then I've got to convince you, because I already know, like in 2018, I already know what most of you are thinking. This is why I I, I don't like the church. All the talk of fire and brimstone, of judgment, death, and hell. This is why I don't like the church. This is what's wrong with the church in the world. All the talk about judgment, vengeance, God's wrath, His punishment, hell. That's what's wrong with the church. And I want to convince you that's a deeply inconsistent, it is an intellectually inconsistent thing to say, and I want to show you that you actually believe in hell already. You believe in a proportional judgment, but then the last thing I want to show you is that to believe in in, in judgment, to believe that God is a judge and to believe that there is a judgment day is actually good news. I know. It's going to be hard. You ready? So the suffering that these people were enduring, already we're thinking about something that's upside down. It says, the suffering they were enduring, verse 5, this, that suffering, is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. So uh, we're already in strange territory, right? Something bad was happening and was hurting them and making them uncomfortable, and yet that was the marks that God had not abandoned them, but in fact loved them and was with them and was doing something powerful in the world. Already we're speaking a foreign language, right? Because you are programmed in 2018 to believe if something feels bad, it is bad. If you don't like it, if it makes you uncomfortable, then it must be evil. Now, now don't, don't miss this. We saw this in the book of Jude. That's what's called simply, that's, that's sensuality. That is the underlying premise that what is worth worshiping is comfort and pleasure. And everything that gets in the way of your comfort and pleasure is evil. And it's evidence of what we would call idolatry. You worship comfort, you worship pleasure, such that if anything comes and makes you uncomfortable, you don't like it, you assume it's bad and you run from it. And already he says, no, actually, the suffering you're enduring is evidence that God has not abandoned you. God has put you in this spot for a specific purpose. So already we're being challenged to believe something different. But then he says, since indeed God considers it just, to repay with affliction those who afflict you and then grant relief to those who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven. Jesus is going to return and he's going to repay the ungodly and he's going to relieve all of his people. Those, he says, literally who have believed in verse 10. Marvel at Jesus. We're the ones who have believed because we've marveled at who Jesus is. Now I've got to run you through the Old Testament just kind of briefly but then I've got to show you something that I, I, I think may be welling up inside of your head. Now, now, if you're familiar with the Bible, you might be tempted to think, oh, a God of judgment, a God of wrath, that's the Old Testament. That's something that happens in the Old Testament. And we see this from the beginning, right? Very beginning, we have these two people, our great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather Adam and our great-great-great-great-great-grandmother Eve, right? And so we see this picture of what happens when sin enters. It immediately destroys the family. And this perfect union that was being experienced with these people and God is disrupted. It's completely fractured. And so while they were enjoying some communion with God, they begin to rebel against God. They want something other than God. Instead of being satisfied with God and his presence and saying, you're enough, this is enough to satisfy me and to protect me, care for me and hold me forever, I want something else. I don't want to be your dependent creature. I want to be like God. And so the first temptation that was felt in the garden is the same temptation we feel all the time, to be a superhuman, right? To be more than what we are. And the first temptation, right, for Adam and Eve was, if you'll eat this fruit, you'll be like God. Rather than saying, hey, just be satisfied with God. Be satisfied. You're in his presence, He's enough. He satisfies you. He, he holds you up. He, he provides for you. And instead of saying, that's enough, the first temptation then and the same temptation you and I have now is to say, I want more. And instead of desiring God, I desire something else. And I'm going to come back to that. Because the penalty for that was that they were banished from the garden. They were banished from God's presence. Now, this is the beauty of the Bible is that had I written the Bible and I was God, that would have been the last story that it was ever written. Right? Oh, you cross me? Well, that's the end of that. Wipe them off the face of the planet and be done. Start over. But that isn't the story of the Bible, is it? Even though the first stories of human failure, every story after that is like, and God and God forgave them, and God restored them, and God didn't give up on them, and God came after them, and they ran away, and God chased them. I mean, it's over and over. This is a picture of a group of people who look a lot like us, because again, I think we can say our great-great-great-great-grandmother and great-great-grandfather, like this, this, this is what we look like. This ought to encourage you, sort of, because everyone's either freaked out because their family's not perfect or they think they're nuts. Well, that's because, if you'll remember our great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, Cain, when he got mad at his brother, great 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 great, great our great-uncle, Abel, what happened? So, so your, your family issues aren't new. In fact, they've been around the whole time. And what's so remarkable is that even though we know that, God doesn't abandon them. God knows they're going to fail and God pursues them. And so he sends his prophets to speak words of judgment. Turn, come back to me. Seek me, find me, turn to me. I'll relent, I'm full of loving kindness. Now you'll be tempted to think that that picture of judgment is a picture of an Old Testament God. And so the only place I know to tell you this is to go straight to the words of Jesus. And I want you to see the picture of righteous judgment is not something just from the Old Testament. It's something right out of the mouth of of Jesus. I want to push this on you. For most of you, maybe you've heard of Jesus, you like the thought of Jesus, and you like the thought of being a nice, good person. And you know who really messes you, will mess with you? Jesus. Luke chapter 20, he tells a parable of some wicked tenants. He says there was a man planted a vineyard and let out its 10 or it and let it out to tenants that is he let, gave his business to some stewards and then he went into another country for a long while right so a man had a business and trusted it to the care of some people verse 10 when the time came he sent a servant to the tenants so that he would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard right he was going to go collect the profits from his business but the tenants beat him that is the servant and sent him away empty-handed, and he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully, and he sent him away empty-handed, verse 12, and he sent yet a third, and this one they also wounded and threw him out.? Right? The, the owner of the property was simply sending servants to collect the profits that rightfully belonged to him. But the people who were stewarded care or were given stewardship and care over what the, the owner had given to them every time they had a chance to simply return to God what was rightful, or excuse me, return to the owner what was rightfully his, they rejected it. As a picture of us, right? Every moment we get to simply return thanks and gratitude to God for what is rightfully his, this is what we do. And you would think this is where the owner of the property comes in and destroys destroys the whole thing, kills everyone. Not yet. There's one more thing. Verse fourteen or verse fourteen it says, Then the landowner the landowner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I know what I'll do. I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. Verse 14, but when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And Jesus asks, as he begins to think through the implications of it, he asks the people to think through the implications of it. He says, what then will the owner of the vineyard, the business, do to those people who killed the son? He will come and he will destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Now when those who were around heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders have rejected has now become the cornerstone. For everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. This is your sweet, kind Jesus talking here, dropping threats. He does it again. In Matthew chapter 11, he gives a woe and a threat to these unrepentant cities. He says, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, or Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? you will be brought down to Hades, that is, hell. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom, a a city in the Old Testament that was destroyed by God, than you. Matthew 23 gives these woes to these people. Fill up then the measure of wrath of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and you'll crucify. Some you'll flog in the synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of the righteous. Abel, remember? Remember? to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Mark chapter 9, verse 42. Jesus drops a death threat. Whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in, who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him If a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Did you catch these like, it'd be better if this happened and better if this happened? Have you ever played that game before where someone says something like, would you rather be drowned to death or would you rather be burned to death? Right? And the point of that question is kind of so you're like, they're both awful. Why would I want one over the other? And Jesus plays this game and he says, if you had a choice between being drowned to death or facing the punishment that you deserve for causing people to stand. Did you you catch what he did? You will want to be drowned. You, You won't even need to think about it like, please, drown me. Drown me instead of that. Think about that for just a moment. This is Jesus. Mark chapter 14, Jesus pronounces a curse on even Judas. Son of man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not even been born. Do you catch that? If you had the choice of like not existing or experiencing the wrath of God for betraying Jesus, turning against Jesus, you would rather not exist. Luke 21. You see this over and over and over again. Jesus throwing down these gauntlets, these woe to them. He, even tells, I love, he, he tells some people, look, don't be afraid of the people who can like, persecute you and simply hurt your body and kill you. Don't be afraid of those people. They can only kill you. You be afraid of the one who can not only kill you, but can destroy your soul in hell. I love what he's saying. He's like, don't be afraid of people. They can only kill you. You be afraid of God. You be afraid of God who can punish you forever and ever. That's who you should fear. Okay, so has this already at least sort of the line of great against your 2018 sensibilities? I thought Jesus was a nice guy. And I want to encourage you, the only way that Jesus being a nice guy means anything is if ultimately we recognize who he really is. God's love is only worth having in light of how holy and perfect he is. Otherwise, his love is frivolous and careless. I want to encourage you, the the word, the characteristic that we see in the Bible that describes God more than any other characteristic, you know what it is? Holiness. God is holy. God is holy. He's perfect. He's set apart. He's righteous. And because he's holy, it means his love is informed by his character and by virtue. His love alone is not a good thing. If he just is loving, that's bad. That's very bad. And I would encourage you, the same is true for you. Well, we just need to love, we need to love everything. Really? Do you love murder? Do you love rape? Do you love the molestation of children? Do you love human trafficking? I want you to see the the, the things inside you that push against the belief in judgment, hell, and good and evil, and the holiness and righteousness of God are in you. They are. You You haven't applied them rightly. I want you to see loving everything isn't a solution. Love only informed by virtue and holiness is worth having. And the love of God is only really cool because you know you don't deserve it. Look, man, it would be really awesome. I mean, you know, I don't know. My wife loves me, and that's awesome. But you know what makes it really awesome? She's way out of my league. I mean, she is. She's, and, and the fact that I don't deserve it, that's what makes it awesome. She knows me. She knows the, the depths of me. She knows the depths of my depravity. She's seen it on display, and she still loves me. And that's a big deal. The same thing is true, multiplied times the infinite and matchless nature of our righteous and holy God. For him to love you is only cool because you know down deep you don't deserve it. Down deep, you know the love of a perfect and holy God is not something you've earned. I want you to understand that this picture of judgment, this picture of wrath, if I can kind of win you over, is something that you already feel, it's something that you already understand. And I'll put it this way to you. The greatness of the sin is proportional to the one sin against. And you already believe this. You already practice this. It's actually built into who we are. So when I say something like that, a perfect and holy God will send people to hell, banished from his presence, and as we saw here, they were going to be the receiving end of affliction, they're going, to be the, they're going to be receiving a, reflect, a revelation of Christ in fire and receiving God's vengeance. And there's something in you, I think, that probably rises up and goes like, I don't like that. That makes me feel uncomfortable. But I want, I want to push against that and I make a case that you already believe in this. You see, often when we look at a sin, that is something that is wrong, a trespass, something that someone has done something against someone else, something that, has, that doesn't fit, that, that's where we understand the picture of sin, particularly a, a trespass against God, we've gone against his nature, we typically just compare one sin to the other. And whichever one seems worse, we tend to think that sin is worse. But the Bible doesn't do that. The Bible says that a sin is actually evil, not because it's better or worse than another sin. Even though there's, there are consequences that vary from sin to sin, the greatness of a sin has nothing to do with it the way it weighs against another sin. The greatness of a sin comes from how it weighs against the holiness and perfection of God. Now, you already believe this. Let me give you an example of a sin that I might commit against you or someone else, right? So imagine we're in my backyard. It's fenced in, right? To delineate my property from your property and you're my neighbor, you live right next door, okay? But you're over in my yard or maybe someone else is over you, know, like you in my yard and, and we're playing a good yard game. Whatever you get excited about yard games, that's the one we're playing. For me, it's wiffle ball, right? So I'm playing wiffle ball, right? And uh, we're in my yard, and as every yard game, the purpose of the yard game at some point is knock the thing over the fence into the other person's yard. And So we're playing wiffle ball, and I, of course, knock it into the other yard because you bring that weak junior high junk into my kitchen. That's what I'm going to do. <laughs> right? Wiffle ball on the other side. It's in, it's in your yard. Okay? Now, it's your property, and I don't have permission to go in that yard. Okay? And so I walk over to the fence. I climb over it. And you know what, you know what to do here because you've done this before. You look for signs of angry animals, right? You're like, no, okay, we're good, right? You look, where's the ball? It's over there. And since we're playing wiffle ball, that ball's way on the other side of the yard, right? And I don't have permission, but I jump over the fence into your property and I go get that ball. I have trespassed onto your property. I get the ball, I bring it back. Now, all I did is I jumped over the fence, I went into your property, uninvited, without permission, I've trespassed against you. What happens to me? Like what, what really happens between you and I? Think about it. Maybe, maybe you'll be angry. Maybe if, if you're really brave, you'll knock on my door and ask me not to do it again. Or I don't know, maybe you'll do something. But at the very worst, maybe there's a little bit of animosity now that exists between you and I as neighbors. At the worst. Because I've just sinned against you, and you're just my neighbor. Now, imagine next door to my house was something like a federal prison. Imagine next door to my house was something like, I don't know, a military base. And I hit the ball over the fence, and I walk over to my neighbor, the military base or a federal prison, and I do the exact same thing. I climb over the fence. I go get the ball, what happens? You get it, like, it's the exact same trespass. Nothing about the thing I did has changed at all. I did the exact same thing, but the thing that makes it a big deal is not whether I did this kind of a thing or that kind of a thing, it's who I did it against. You see, you believe this, you know this is true. One of those things might make you angry because let's be honest, you're nobody. But if I hit a ball and I go chase it into, a say, like a federal penitentiary or like a, a military base, well then, to be fair, I'm just sinning against someone greater than you. And that won't just be something they'll forgive. They'll put me in court. They'll try me with trespassing. You get it? You already believe this has already functions. Now take that, right? It was the same sin. It wasn't any different in those two scenarios. But because I sinned against someone much greater, the penalty is proportionally greater. Now take what you just got in your head right now and multiply that expanse between you and the federal judge that would sentence you and multiply that expanse between you and that federal courthouse, right? And multiply at times the matchless and infinite and righteous nature of a perfect God. And now you have begun to scratch the surface surface of what we mean when we say that people who sin against God deserve wrath and vengeance it's not the thing God help me some of you right now you're 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 trying to stop doing the thing well if I could just stop doing this thing it'd be better you're missing it the gravity of the situation has nothing to do with the thing you're doing as if you're special it has to do about whom you've trespassed against Now, understand this. I know you you think, like, well, how can a good and loving God send people to hell to punish them? You know this. The same way that, like, you can't send me to prison for getting a ball out of your yard. But someone else can. And there are some people who, who can do that. I want you to see that the only way that a doctrine of judgment, hell, and vengeance can exist is there is a holy and righteous God. It's the only way it makes sense. It's the only way it works. And you already believe this. You already believe in a proportional response. You feel this when you're wronged or when something happens. Something inside of you wells up and says, someone must pay for this. This cannot stand. Someone must do something to repair this. You felt this. Some of you felt this recently. Hashtag me too. It's a popular outrage at the moment. But it just so happened to be time with something else that's happened in the last couple of weeks. A man by the name of Larry Nasser, Dr. Larry Nasser, I believe, who apparently, in some way, shape, or form, committed deviant sexual acts against at least 150 gymnast girls. That ought to bother you. Like, if that doesn't bother you, we have another problem. And this is what should really bother you. For every Larry Nasser that gets caught and paraded in public, what is this, women, maybe? There's at least three more who don't. That ought to bother you. Something inside of you ought to go like, this cannot stand. Someone must pay. Someone's got to fix this. This week, right down the road, people will say statistically, like the, the amount of human trafficking, the amount of sex slaves that will be drawn into Minneapolis for the Super Bowl will be at an all time high. Statistically, here's the worst part of it that, that's not even true. There's human trafficking going on in Minneapolis year round. Worldwide. Wherever there are people, there's human trafficking. The only thing that's happening in Minneapolis, it just happened to be a lot of people. You get a lot of people together, they tend to sin together in awful ways. That ought to bother you. The overwhelming majority of those people being drug in to be used and abused, commodified and, and simply thrown away when they're done, those people are, are typically people who are, who are extremely poor, they're runaways. Something like 86% of those people are victims of sexual assault before they turn 10 They're almost always plucked out of very poor minority neighborhoods. Does that bother you? That ought to bother you. So when I come along and say that there is a holy and just God who inflicts vengeance upon people, quit pretending to be shocked. At least quit pretending to be shocked and calling yourself a Christian. Stop saying you believe in God, but you don't believe in a God that wouldn't send people to hell. What you really are saying, if you don't believe in hell, you're saying you don't really believe there is a holy God who is just and righteous. Recognize that to say that you believe in God but don't believe in hell is saying that you really don't believe that God is any good. There is a holy and perfect and just God. The Bible teaches of him, and the person who shouts it the most loudly is Jesus himself. Just be honest. Just be honest with yourself. Say, I believe in a God who's a coward like me. I believe in a God who doesn't stand up for what's right, and that's why I don't like the thought of hell. I don't really care about oppression, and I don't really like a God who does. I don't really care if anyone hurts me, and so I don't like believing in a God who doesn't get angry about it. And see that this is an extension of his love. look, I love you in this room. I love you. You know this, right? Love you dearly. I want to plead with you to see Jesus as glorious. But there are a couple of people in this building right now, my two daughters, who, I'm sorry, I love more. I just love them more. I love them dearly. And even though you, if you love them, I mean, excuse me, if you love me and 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 we're good, if you were to, like, harm one of them, what would I, as a loving father, do to you? Get it? Stop pretending that there's some figure of your imagination that's loving everything. Admit that you aren't even able to live up to that. And you wouldn't want to. Perfect love demands a perfect response. So I want you to see, Jesus will either repay you or relieve you. This is, this is the picture of the Bible, and I want to now, I want to spend the rest of our time, if, if, you, if you could just grasp that it is intellectually inconsistent to believe that, say that you believe in a God, but then not believe that there's a punishment for transgressing against him. Again, you're, you're just being intellectually hypocritical, but once you realize this is what we do anyway, right? Again, that's, remember, that's why I can jump your fence, it's no big deal, but I can't jump into a prison fence, right? Proportional response to the transgression. Okay, you already believe this, it's consistent to think so. Here's what I want to convince you, it's actually good news. It's actually really good news. Jesus is going to come back and he's going to actually give you whatever you want. He's going to come back and he's going to return whatever you want. And his judgment is actually good news. So he grants relief to those that are his, right? In the same way that if I was, you know, if you had harmed, if you had harmed my daughters or something, when I step in on their behalf, they're going to experience relief but because you've harmed then you're going to experience what he says here in verse 6. You're going to experience repayment. And I, I love what it says. It says that there, something's going to happen. Jesus is going to come back and he's going to do something. And the, the presence that they experience, it says that he will be revealed. He will be revealed. The literal word used here is the word apocalypse. It's the word apocalypse. You see it in verse 7? when the Lord Jesus will be revealed. The people who will experience a revelation of Jesus' return are going to be the ones that don't already know Him. So this is what this looks like. This means that when Jesus returns, those of us who are in Him will experience that as relief. And will be like, thank you, Jesus! I've been pleading with you to come back. Please fix this. But those those of us who are not seeking that relief, seeking something other than God, they're going to experience it as, a, as an apocalypse, literally. And this is what we believe. But I want you to see this is actually good news. And I'll give you a couple reasons why. Believing in God's j- judgment over all things is actually really good news for you. Because I know most of you, the majority of you, all of you were born probably since 1940, so that makes you're pretty self-centered in the grand scheme of the world. Uh, but some of you were born since 1980. And we're especially self-absorbed. And deep down, deep down, you have a desire to count. Deep down, you have a desire. I'm like an all-consuming desire to matter. You have a deep longing and a searching inside of you for meaning. It's why you... I don't know, it's why you Snapchat everything you see. It's why you take selfies of yourself everywhere. Because deep down inside, you're crying out, please someone acknowledge that I matter. You take pictures of food. Please make it to where this food actually means something. Please, someone validate my existence. Please someone tell, tell me that I matter and that the things I do matter. Did you catch the good news of God's judgment? He says overwhelmingly in Christ... You do matter. Every single thing matters. It all matters. Oh, will hear the good news. I know, I know you've been kind of expressing this in narcissistic, self-absorbed ways, but that desire inside of you to matter and to be special, to mean something, God in judgment says you do every last thing. He sees it all. In that moment of your deepest abandonment, Right? place where you're like, no one cares. No one's paying attention. No one knows. Hear this good news. Our God is with us and for us, and he knows. He knows. Deep down inside, you, you, want, to, you want to matter. Jesus did this. Remember the, the story we see? A bunch of people come in to the synagogue, and they start giving chunks of money, loudly and flamboyantly, And then a woman walks in and gives all she has, drops two coins. Who notices? Probably no one else, but Jesus. That desire to have meaning, to have purpose, Jesus says, I see it all. The things you've done will never be forgotten. Every single thing counts. All of it. And when you stop believing that there's any sort of judgment, then you know what happens next. You have no reason to believe that anything else matters. Nothing counts. You've lost meaning in your own existence. I mean, you see the good news in this. The second thing I want to show you here is that not only do you matter and God sees everything, put it this way, if God's actually the judge, then you don't have to be. I know some of you in this room have been sinned against in deep and profound ways. In fact, I know many of you have been sinned against in ways that you've never even told anyone. And I want to encourage you. That person that harmed you, who did that thing that you'll never tell anyone, that person has it coming. And God will either display his might and glory over that person, by redeeming them, rescuing them, forgiving them, and restoring them, or he will demonstrate his glory by punishing them and inflicting vengeance upon that person forever and ever. That person did, did that did that, that thing to you, that thing that you won't even talk about. You know who knows about it? And you know who, just like a loving and caring father, is coming towards you? To step in between you and that thing and inflict vengeance upon the enemies of his people. It's good news. And this means that if he's the judge, you don't have to be. You don't have to carry that vengeance and anger, that unforgiveness. You don't don't have to have everything in your life motivated by bitterness. You don't have to take every step in this life trying to prove yourself. Trying to assert yourself. If we know that our Father is coming back and He's going to restore all things, then that means we don't have to grip things looking for vengeance and repayment now. If you hear Jesus, you have to admit, even in His words, He's a judge. And I want to convince you that's actually good news. It's actually really good news. It's good news because whenever we have justice and vengeance in our hands, we always overreach, don't we? Right? I mean, that's our problem with the death penalty, isn't it? It's like, it's in our hands. And we know for a fact that we can wield justice poorly. Someone innocent might get punished, right? If you have too much faith in humanity, I encourage you, come over to my house, we'll watch Netflix and watch what is it, Making a Murderer? You should do it. We do it wrong. The eyes of justice are our eyes, our sinful, broken eyes. And so there's a sense in which like, when we inflict vengeance and justice, it's, it, feels, it feels bad or we're kind of scared. Like, I don't know if I'm really the one to say this person's guilty or innocent. But I want to encourage you, don't, don't let that get in the way of seeing God as perfect. He sees through these kinds of failures. He sees all things, knows all things. So that ultimately, judgment day, will give you what you have been after your whole life. Remember that story the very beginning? Adam and Eve in the perfect place, and they had a choice. Be satisfied and desire God or want something other than God. And God in his mercy will give you whichever one you want. Did you catch that? It says that he will be with them, but... but those that want something other than God in Christ, it says that they will be suffering eternal destruction. But it doesn't say anything silly like a, like, a, like a red man with a pitchfork, right? That's what we typically think of. Instead, it just says they will be away, in verse 9, from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. You see, the greatest punishment, evidently, is that God gives you what you want. And if you desire something other than Him, In his vengeance and wrath, he lets you have it. But I want you to see the good news in this judgment. At the end of life, we'll either say, C.S. Lewis tells us, thy will be done, or God will look at us and say, fine, thy will be done. If you want nearness with God, you'll get it. If you want something other than God, apart from God, find here that you get it. The ultimate reason that this is good news is this, is that there was a person who experienced Judgment Day. There was a person who, even though he sought the Lord, the Lord turned his back on him. And that one is Jesus. You see, Jesus is the one who has endured Judgment Day so that we might be delivered from it. And Jesus on the cross did something magnificent for us. We see that while we seek the Lord and believe, God draws near to us. We see this as as an axiom throughout the scripture. The Lord opposes the proud but draws near to the humble, right? Except one time. There was one time where an innocent man on a cross sought the Lord and the Lord turned his back on that innocent man such that that innocent man cried out, quoting Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? Why have you left me here to die alone? And I want to encourage you, there was a judgment day and a person who endured that judgment and he did it so that we would not have to. You find yourself crying out for justice, right? Someone must pay. Someone needs to take this wrongdoing seriously. Friend, look at the cross. There is no place where sin is taken more seriously. Look at the cross, the one who saw the gravity of sin and the weight that was going to crush us and was willing to send his son to take that place. If you find yourself saying, someone must pay for this. We sing on a regular basis. That's right. We believe that's true. We just say that Jesus is the one who paid it all. If you find yourself saying, blood must be shed. I encourage you with something. When we look at the cross, we realize the blood of the sinner, the blood of the perpetrator is settled. There is blood that's shed. But oh, thanks be to God, it's not the blood of the sinner. For those of us who want justice, we look at the cross and we realize God has doled out justice. But oh, thanks be to God, he delivered it to his son so that you and I would have mercy and grace. I may not have convinced you and your 2018 disposition may not allow for it. But you matter, and everything you do does matter, and Jesus will return to repay or to relieve. You count. And we see here that God is evidently counting. But don't miss this. You don't have to look to Judgment Day in fear. You can look at the judgment that God has given to Jesus on the cross and experience the relief from affliction. Paul tells this church to have. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your goodness towards us. Uh, Thank you for bringing us to this place. God, I confess this isn't a topic I would have picked for myself. This isn't something I would readily want to encourage people with. I confess and even in my own heart that when I think of your judgment, I, I regularly just experience fear and guilt and shame. So, would you do something this morning? Would you reveal to us yourself in such a way that we would know that the judge is righteous and good, that he is merciful and gracious? This morning, would you convince us in our souls that the greatest judgment? The deepest hell was experienced by our brother Jesus so that we would know nothing but love and acceptance from the Father. God, we confess that often we're afraid of this because we're really afraid of the sin that's in our own heart. We regularly want things other than you. Thank you that you were not satisfied to just simply let us have that, but you pursued us. You came after us. You sent your Son to take our place to draw us back so that now when we consider you coming back for us, we don't experience fear, but uh, we, we experience relief. We long for the day when you would come and make all things new, that you would give justice, but we thank you mostly that when you return, we'll experience mercy in Christ. Grant that gift of faith in us this morning, that we would trust and respond, that we would believe and receive and experience communion with you forever and ever. We ask this, In the good name of Jesus, amen.